Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners, all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi, everybody, and Happy New Year. Welcome back to the Inclusive Innovators podcast for the first episode of 2021. We hope that this year is much happier and healthier and more exciting than last year, although it does seem like we've kicked off on exactly the same foot as we left 2020. In any case, this week, I'm super excited to chat with Dom Hyams of Tiny Man Digital. Dom and I have a really interesting conversation about communication and disability and look forward to chatting to you next week. Awesome. Welcome, Dom Himes, to the Inclusive Innovators podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Dom. I was wondering if you might be able to kick things off by just giving us a little introduction to yourself and what you're currently doing. Yeah, so my name is Dom Himes. Um, I've just recently set up a new digital marketing agency called Tiny Man Digital, um, based out of London, but kind of servicing here here there and anywhere um because of the nature of being in the digital space yeah like one of the one of the helpful benefits of working from home is that you can uh, plug into you know working from anywhere really which is nice Absolutely. Um, that's great dom i was wondering if uh, you might be able to give us a little bit of a, a brief history of, of sort of um how you got to where you are today one of the things we ask everybody who comes in the show is there um innovation inspiration to get a bit of a sense of how they came to, to be an inclusive innovator like yourself. So maybe just run us through, you know, some of your recent history and give us a little bit more background into um, how you, you know, got to Tiny Man Digital today. Yeah. Um, well, I'll give you a whistle stop tour um, because, <laughs> because honestly, you know, everything from my kind of professional career has played a part into landing me where I am now. So, and that starts all the way back when I'm 18 and I did a Channel 4 documentary where I went around Europe with mates called Crip on a Trip. Um, and that was cool. with me in front of camera um, as a uh, as part of the documentary. And that experience kind of gave me amazing insight into the kind of the media world both in front of them behind camera and the power of digital media visual media um and it was something that i knew that i in some form wanted to be a part of i went to university did uh, management like business management but mm -hmm. specializing in marketing and um and then came out uh, had a brief stint in advertising didn't really get on with it that well mainly because there's just such a lot of precedence on like being seen to be the 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 person that's working the hardest and like right. all about image rather than actual work life balance being a really important thing so mm -hmm. so kind of sort of sidestepped out of that um it kind of coincided with the financial crash in 20, 20 uh, 2008 so that kind of just naturally fizzled um and i looked at other opportunities and I got on the Channel 4 graduate scheme, um, which I knew was going to be offering um, a place, a sports production company that was going to be producing the Paralympics. So I um, applied, I got an interview with the production company in question, because you're kind of placed somewhere for a year, and this was called Sunset and Vine. Um, mm -hmm. I got the role, which is awesome, and that meant that between kind of 2010 and 12, I was like, working on the Paralympics build up um almost almost completely and and from a production point of view that was seeing me kind of you know I was kind of media managing all the previous Paralympic content educating production staff about 
disability, about language, about the sports themselves, about kind of themes that we could pull out in the in the coverage, et cetera, et cetera, um, which was like an amazing thing to be a part of. Um, and when the games time came around, it was just, you know, I was working in the Olympic Village, you know, mm. the IPC near where Plexel is now. And, um, and that was, uh, again, like one of the most amazing experiences. And, and up until that point, I hadn't really like embedded myself in the world of disability, although I'm a disabled person. Um, there wasn't really, you know, anything in my life that was like focused around disability. Mm. And I found it an unbelievably rewarding, and I'm not going to use the word inspiring, but yeah. it was, it, you know, it was just really like empowering to open a newspaper on one of the days of the Paralympic Games and the, the front and back page be a double spread of you know David Weir in a wheelchair and and, you know as a kid I reckon I probably didn't imagine ever seeing that kind of thing so so it was amazing and again it kind of reinforced to me the power of representation of inclusivity um and and obviously that of media and digital media as well so fast forward a little bit, I continued to work with Sunset Vine, but then mm-hmm. um, whilst doing, whilst working there, I was doing some freelance um, multimedia production um, and uh, and then made some promo films for a disability access app called Assist Me. Mm-hmm. Um, they had an opportunity to hire in someone to kind of manage their digital media and comms, so kind of marketing and comms role. Um, and I kind of jumped at the chance to do something different again, kind of focused around disability. And then, um, and then though I've stayed with them kind of for about five or six years and that role kind of evolved into being sort of communications director across the parent company grid smarter cities, um, which sort of in the smart city space, the technology space, um, and the startup space, um, was kind of, you know, growing. A growing entity um then we kind of get to this year and we have lockdown um start lockdown working as hard as ever on technology that we hope can help people during this crazy time um as you know at working at grid and uh, and then got furloughed um and then whilst being furloughed i kind of picked up a few free cl- freelance sort of comms branding e-commerce store designing um jobs which more than anything were just to keep me busy um just so i wasn't twiddling my thumbs and um and actually found it really rewarding really enjoyable and kind of naturally more people sort of started getting um you know inquiring as to what i was doing and if i could help them and then sort of serendipitous serendipitously i couldn't have done that after a drink um (laughs) uh then i actually was made redundant um in kind of july well i found out it's going to be made redundant late july early august Mm -hmm. and um and it, it was quite strange actually because i honestly at that point wasn't kind of scared or fearful or angry or upset it was it was an emotion of like almost excitement really that actually we're riding this crazy wave of COVID and, you know, I've just been dealt a new, a new kind of hand of cards and I've just got to, I've just got to roll with it. You know, we said just before we started recording, it's, it's we're riding this wave and you just got to take what comes. And it was very much like feeling quite calm and comfortable about the idea that, okay, cool. Well, it's, it's presented itself quite clearly now as to what I'm going to do, I'm going to be obviously doing more of this kind of marketing communication stuff. Um, but absolutely, I want to kind of focus that in, you know, as much as I can. Obviously, I'm not going to, I'm not exclusively um, working with disability-related organisations, but mm-hmm. like in in the fabric of who I am as a person, but also my company. You know, as a commitment, um, I want to work with diverse people. I want to represent disability wherever I can. Um, I want to create accessible, inclusive content. Um, and obviously, naturally, uh, I have started working with quite a few different disability disability related organisations, which has been really cool. So, so it's um it's yeah it's it's kind of just quite organically grown really. Um, and 
I set it up as a company called Tiny Man Digital. Um, I mean, the the thinking around it just again kind of fit into place. I once upon a time had a blog called Tiny Man Blog, mm-hmm. um, where I drew drew little diagrams of them, um, of kind of different life experiences and sometimes very complex, but shown visually. Um, and then kind of lesson of learning to accompany that. And then I just make those diagrams in PowerPoint, which actually ended up being uh, me kicking, <laughs> just sort of kicking myself for choosing such a ridiculous medium to start drawing <laughs> these very, very complex diagrams. But and, and and they got more and more elaborate, so it took longer and longer. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, so that kind of is where the name originally got born, I suppose. And then it was Tiny cool. Man Digital. And um, and here we are. So it's joined the Elise program, kind of made some great contacts already in various different organizations and spaces. And um, and yeah, I'm busy, so that's good. So, so it's all going well. Well, that was a that was a, a fantastic whistle stop story, and it's a nice kind of circularity that you know, like you sort of mentioned that your first break was in the Olympic Park, doing some, some awesome stuff around the Paralympics. And now with the Elise program, you, I'm sure you'll be back in the Olympic Park regularly, um, doing some you know, some cool stuff in the second evolution. Um, that's great, Tom. There's plenty of stuff there that I want to jump into, but I might just quickly ask you um, if you're happy just to maybe tell uh, the listeners a little bit more about your, your disability, just to give a bit more yeah, context sure. to someone who's, who's not met you before. So I was born with a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta, which is more commonly known as brittle bones. So that means I'm of short stature. Um, I use a powered wheelchair for getting around here, there and everywhere. Um, and I kind of have a very independent life. I'm able to go out and about um, you know, as I please, which is amazing. Um, but similarly, I live with my partner, Sophie, um, and so need you know, re- reasonably regular support, whether it becomes from you know cooking all of that kind of thing to personal care and all that stuff so so i've i've been very lucky in life that i've managed to lead a a very independent life but at the same time um very well aware of limitations i have and they're mainly kind of practical and physical around my my own mobility yeah yeah fantastic thanks for sharing that and i think one of the things i want to jump into a bit later on is just around you know achieving that independence and what some of that those kind of accommodations that you need to get yourself set up are but then like once you've got them in place how you know how you can live a full and independent life and I think particularly travel is a very good example of that where travel for lots of disabled people is a real barrier well is a real you know difficult um, thing to, to accomplish because there are so many assorted barriers um, and so I'd love to pick your brain a bit more about like your experience traveling and particularly you know your, your journey um, that you, you enter the documentary, um, but we get to that in a sec because I want to talk a bit about what you just spoke about um, before around the kind of you know your work in the marketing comms and, and particularly your time you know working with the para, or, you know in the Paralympic environment and seeing representation for the first time in such a meaningful sense. Um, obviously, now as a as a you know professional in the media communications industry, um, you know you have a, a, a role to play in that as well in terms of how you can help represent and portray disability and disability stories um, in the mainstream. But would love to hear your thoughts on I guess on like the change that you've seen throughout your time and, and whether the, you know, I, I get the impression the Olympics played a, a sort of a, a pivotal kind of role in terms of that. But from, as you mentioned, when you were a kid to now, in terms of how disability has been um, perceived and portrayed in the media, just tell us a little bit about the change you've seen in, in your time so far. Yeah, I think obviously um, prior, I think like 2012 acts as a marker in the sand of time um, and up to that point, you didn't see disability in the media to any great extent. Um, so it was like very niche or no- novelty, you know, you could even say, or like there will be a specific person, a uh, specific reason why someone with a disability was included in the media, but it wasn't going to just be there like anyone else would be there, if that makes sense. Um, not inclusive for being inclusive sake. And then you know, people saw disability in the Paralympics. They, their screens were were flooded um, with content. So even if you weren't ever like intentionally watching the Paralympics, you'd at least be seeing like dozens of adverts about the Paralympics 
on channel four when you're flicking through channels and on billboards and all that kind of thing and and for a lot of people just seeing disability seeing people of different shapes and sizes um is like a powerful thing that you know breeds comfort around disability and allows people to ask questions and gives confidence that like disability isn't something to shy away from and it, it's a topic that can be talked about and i think that 2012 acted acted as this kind of start of the conversation around disability and around open dialogue around disability and there was kind of one sort of polarizing thing in that in that um so, you know with the paralympics obviously we were seeing a lot of paralympians on screen obviously and and that in some ways skews disability representation because um because the only people you're seeing are those that have you know triumphed over adversity shall we say and their great successes and they're you know got this amazing thing going on because they're paralympians and they've got quite often a, a story that's really you know inspiring again um and in inverted commas um and the reality of you know the actual general population is that that's only a small proportion of disability um a very small proportion and um and so from that time you were almost seeing like paralympian and success and disability triumph over adversity um and then the the opposite of that that you were seeing was kind of like the down and destitute and incapable of disability and you were kind of polarized into one or the other camp um is how i i felt that it was being perceived and portrayed um in the media and then so like through time i think from then the the conversation has started to become more nuanced like and i think that there's greater understanding and realization that um that actually things are more complex there's more layers to the onion that need to be unpeeled and i think that along with conversations that people are having around diversity black lives matter that kind of dialogue that's going on around different sort of minorities that only kind of helps strengthen dialogue around disability and around how actually representation of disability is really important and um, you know you've got films coming out that get slated because they're not having um, disabled actors in them now and again that like sparks really healthy dialogue about right cool you know we need to see better representation disability um disability on our screens is really important but not as this just celebrated perfect paralympian um but actually we need to see the broad spectrum of of people on our screens um and that actually now is kind of where i think hopefully we are we are coming towards a point where that's becoming more normalized obviously next year being hopefully another paralympic year i mean that that kind of conversation again can can progress and it's not necessarily this time around a conversation around you know great disabled achievement and triumph it's actually a, a more nuanced conversation that involves disability representation in the media yeah plenty to unpack there and i think that was really insightful and i think particularly a point around like the polarization and like you know the exceptionalizing or the exceptionalism that's often associated with disabled individuals who end up in the media and the mainstream it's this sense yeah. that um they have they aren't the norm and that's why we're talking about them and i think it's very super problematic you know and they aren't the norm in two ways they're, they're either like super you know um disadvantaged or they're super privileged in yeah. the community and it just kind of sets up these opposites that when you're the average punter who's watching these shows and you you hear about disability you just you kind of never conceptualize it as anything mainstream it's always an yeah. extreme and always exactly. minority and i think the other point is like you know and the paralympics are, i think are great for for doing this in some sense because they're you know a lot of the disabilities are physical disabilities and so like showing them people who have physical disabilities being athletic really challenges the stereotype that most people would have around disability but it's also as you mentioned this extreme these are elite athletes um and so the average disabled person isn't going to have that sort of level of of um you know 
physical yeah. capacity or prowess or things like that because much like the people who are at the the, you know, the, the Olympics are also yeah. this, this niche group. And I think definitely that means that we have this skewed sense of what people um, people's capacities are when they're disabled. They're either at one end of the super, yeah. they need no help, or they're at the other end and they need all the help rather than yeah. sort of like a middle ground where if we design spaces to be you know, welcoming and accessible in some sense, people as a norm can, can do what they need to. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I was wondering if you might give us some insights into... Um, which characteristics or kind of like, um, you know, features for lack of a better word of the lived experience of disabled people are often excluded from this, the narrative. Like for instance, a lot of the stuff that we speak about on this podcast is around like, you know, the creativity of disabled people because they're problem solving all the time. But this isn't yeah. something that is often spoken about in the same, you know, kind of context as disability in the mainstream yeah. you know or resilience or things like that what are some of the kind of things you think are missing from the discourse around you know what what it's like to live with a disability and therefore disabled people this is a really good question i don't think i've ever been asked that question before um <laughs> i think for, like referencing people that i know in the disability community mm -hmm. um i i would say that there's like a massive ability to sort of to rationalize things mm. um so so you know a lot of people in would have had experiences that you know aren't maybe difficult problematic stressful whatever it might be but they're able to kind of to kind of digest that against a, a filter of rationality so mm. when they've experienced some kind of negative bias or a difficult situation or something as a life event that's um that's happened there's you know a sense of kind of greater understanding i think around okay this is this is the way it is um mm -hmm. and i'm just gonna have to like plow through so maybe rationality is not even the right word like as you said like resilience like it's kind of that as well but it's but it's the ability to kind of logically process all of that and mm. not be overly negatively um you know emotionally kind of responding to that i don't know whether that makes sense lots of long words in a row <laughs> but it, it, no, i think it's, definitely yeah yeah it's so that's kind of one um i think and then the the second would be i suppose being more analytical and being um in the sense of from a kind of social perspective like mm -hmm. having a really good handle on how things work and and being able to observe and analyze how why things are happening and how things are happening and mm -hmm. uh, like as a as a good example like i've i've never played football and i'm not gonna mm -hmm. for one second say that i um would be a good football manager but like, there's something to be said from the age of five years old, watching mm. all my friends play football, and and then like being able to understand certain things about their behaviour and why they do the things they do, like looking from the outside in, and like that's not a statement to kind of, you know, pull at the heartstrings or anything like that. It's it's genuinely like spending more of time actually being in a position to sit back and evaluate things rather mm. than like just do 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 because maybe the do 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 isn't as possible yeah, so yeah. so like decisions have to be made with more consideration yeah. um but but also there's maybe more instinct in there as well so i think for me like being quite socially aware has always been an important part of I know, who i am and my skill set and that mm -hmm. you know maybe compensate slightly for my physical abilities so my ability to kind of look from the outside in um on a lot of situations has definitely been a help to that and i see that in a lot of other kind of not just disabled entrepreneurs but the disability community in in general hmm. yeah thanks tom i think those are really great points i mean particularly the first point around you know the, I guess rationality as you mentioned I think what comes to mind for me is this sort of sense of you know it's this kind of like stoic um, 
stoicism philosophy, but like this sense yeah. that like you can only control some things and there's not and there's not a sense worrying about other things. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that and that kind of links to the second point. I think for lots of disabled people, um, they they get good at analytical kind of you know um, problem solving because one they like you said have to plan a lot of things. There's a lot of moving parts in order to go to do something that a non-disabled person you know doesn't have to consider. Um, and and then the kind of follow-on is that there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and so therefore you have to kind of plan ahead of those things. Yeah. And I think to the other point of when those things do go wrong, it's a lot of the time spent thinking about how to fix those things. And so you just yeah. you know you you engender this ability to to analyze things very quickly, but also to kind of forecast lots of steps, because if you don't do it at some point, you'll have to think about it on the spot. And it's, it's better to plan these things than to kind of be left in the yeah. middle of the street trying to figure out, you know, which train to get you um, around the broken yeah. lift or something like that. <laughs> um, an, all, an all too common problem. Exactly. Um, I think you and I have met crossing um, in a train station, going to different yeah. lifts, presumably. Yeah, um, yeah that's great, thanks, Dom. And I think particularly like interesting in, in terms of how we can, you know, consider, um, like you know, as you mentioned, disability representation moving forward now, particularly in terms of mainstream stuff and trying to get, you know, as the kind of the twenty twenty one Olympics and Paralympics rolls around, um, how we can sort of you know revisit some of that stuff. But I think this point of not just having the Olympics as those periods where people all of a sudden think about disability and you know diversity, but like actually just every you know year raising the baseline so that by the time we get to a Paralympics we have a much better understanding we don't need to sort of shine a light on something people have never heard of it's more so like revisit, revisiting something people are becoming increasingly aware of which is exciting yeah. um, and, and I'm picking like really more not controversial but but like more detailed questions and like you know having a having a lens to look through that's kind of multifaceted, not just like disability sport triumph. You know, actually it's like, okay, so let's now start talking about um, you know, the the problems with funding, with social housing, um, with access, you know, all of these kind of slightly more tricky conversations around disability that you need a little bit more kind of background knowledge on. And hopefully those kind of conversations are ones that start to to become, um, you know, clearer in these in these years where the the lenses shine, you know, being shown on um, disability and the Paralympic movement. Yeah, and in many respects, I think the Olympics and the Paralympics are a very good example for like they're very good micro examples of all these elements of life brought into one because yeah. people come to the Olympic Village, Paralympic Village, and live there for for three weeks or whatever, and that includes yeah. travel and then you know as you mentioned housing and and you know funding and and they also have a you know a job. Um, and part of that sense of, I think of, of, you know, the Olympics being kind of condensed and the Paralympics being condensed just to sport, um, misses out on this whole kind of, you know, in, in many respects, just like operational and logistics kind of challenge that occurs yeah. with the Paralympics, um, which yeah. is probably a really good insight and learning curve for, for lots of other cir uh, circumstances. Um, yeah. And so that sort of links us down to, to the, the concept of of travel with a disability and sort of you know being able to to be set up to go and live a full and independent life you mentioned yeah. obviously that when you were younger you did a um a, a journey that was a documentary um uh with yourself and, and your friends i was wondering if you can give us a little bit of insight into some of the lessons you've learned around traveling through you know through your through your time but particularly um with other people and and as a, dis a disabled person yeah sure um I mean, where where to start? Um, I think I think the first one is like good communication at, at every step of the way, like with mm -hmm. whether it's hotels, airlines, rail companies, whatever. It's like as you say, it's that that planning ahead, um, but not necessarily in a kind of overly cautious way. It's just letting people know what you expect as well. So mm. so if I'm flying on an airline. I'm going to give them all the information they want, but then when I turn up, I'm not just going to be at their mercy. I'm going to say like, Hey, you know, I've got this powered wheelchair. It's really fragile and very expensive. Don't break it. And mm -hmm. I've put things in place to try fingers crossed, um, to make sure that that doesn't happen. So an example of that is in 20, oh, was it 16 or 15, um, I think 2016, I was flying 
um, to Switzerland um, to see uh, my partner's family, um, her auntie that lives there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we arrive in Switzerland and my powered wheelchair um, ends up being put on a baggage car- oh, a baggage trolley to go to the um, terminal instead of being brought up to the aircraft. Uh, falls off the the trolley into a thunderstorm, just for good measure. Um, and it's technically like falling over a meter from the top, from this baggage trolley onto the floor. Um, it's completely written off. And then like fun and games ensues with me trying to essentially claim for this wheelchair, yeah. um, which which I did manage to eventually do. But the amount of like graft and work involved in getting that, yeah. uh, you know, kind of new wheelchair back and all of that stuff was just such a headache and I knew it was the kind of thing that because I'm quite comfortable around I won't say kicking up a fuss but like understanding what is you know is possible and what Mm -hmm. what rights people have and that kind of thing um you know I was something like that although stressful I knew that hopefully I'd be able to solve Mm. whereas I just feel for people in that situation that like genuinely would have if they don't have the inclination or ability to to kind of cause that massive stink mm. then then uh then that would be a horrendously awful yeah. situation where actually they'd end up not with a replacement wheelchair and they would be put off travel forever and they'd have a travel in their powered wheelchair you know i know that traveling flying with an expensive powered wheelchair isn't a risk-free activity mm. but again like i've accepted that's uh an appropriate amount of risk for me to take for the independence it will give me. Um, so like, so now there's things I do to kind of aid that whole process. Um, I humanize my wheelchair by putting a kind of sandwich board over it and yeah. including it. I was advised to put a picture of me to like, again, yeah, humanize no. it and tell them the value of it and put red writing that says fragile, do not, um, you know, handle with care. Um, and like, do not lift from the arms or, and yeah. always lock down, you know, like just basically a, a four point crib sheet of what to do, but like sandwiched yeah. on the front and the back of the wheelchair. And, um, and so far touch wood, you know, every time I've flown since then, it's yeah. been fine. But, but it, it was those kind of little tips that you learn along the way through things going terribly mm. wrong quite often that, um, that, that you learn, you know, another one's, wheelchair accessible accommodation mm. um you know somewhere I've, I've stayed somewhere in paris once that said it was fully wheelchair accessible mm-hmm. um and it had a spiral staircase when you arrived in the in the hotel and again it's like around well what do you do in that situation yeah. um you know how, how do i solve this now and and that is sort of you know from, obviously from now on i make sure i speak to the Hotel, all hotels in question and explain to them like okay hi just so you know i'm coming with a powered wheelchair that can't climb any stairs yeah you know, <laughs> and, and make that very explicit some yeah. people think that once you're on a floor it's accessible and um and but obviously you have to get to that floor first yeah. Yeah. um so so it's just little things like that around like planning but it doesn't even necessarily need to be like it doesn't feel like much planning to me it's just like triple checking um and it's just that awareness that certain things are going to be perceived certain ways by people that don't know you know that there's ignorance uh, uh, everywhere and so it's around like trying to educate on that ignorance but also make sure you're covering your own back um with regard to going out and about so I suppose they're the kind of they're from travel, just in terms of like specifics of like when I travel. Those probably two of the main ones. But also, it's I suppose the third thing would be like asking for help. Like hmm. I I do not ever hesitate whether I'm in a supermarket or a foreign country. I don't mind going up to someone and asking questions because hmm. for me, there's like no negative to that. There's no kind of yeah thing that can can suddenly go wrong is i can only find out additional stuff so so i'm very open to always kind of going oh hey like you know what do i do here i don't know what to do and more often than not someone's willing to to give some information that's really helpful so i suppose that's also like something i've learned is just to always be willing and open to to ask 
questions, but similarly ask for help if if I need it. Yeah, I think that's a great point around just, you know, also destigmatizing asking for help as the person who's asking. And a lot of the time, I think people respond to, to the person who's asking. So if you're asking in a kind of awkward fashion that people might also become really awkward or kind of con- yeah. confused. And if you just, you know, can own the fact that you just need to get, everybody needs help at some point and you just need a bit of help with X, then I think people tend yeah. to just kind of like fall into line and, and want to help rather than sort of freaking out about getting things wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- those are all, I think, really important points, Dom, that you raise. And particularly, I think the idea around like humanizing um you know particularly equipment but the experience is really important like i um as a very kind of you know small example but you know if i travel i often travel with a portable shower chair that i put into a bag and when i check it in you know the the rules and regulations say you can check it in for free because it's a mobility equipment and every time without fail i have to explain to somebody um what it is and you just sort of think that and they've just never thought about this but if you're a, a wheelchair user you don't just take your wheelchair into the shower, right? Like you presumably get onto a different wheelchair um, because, you know, you can imagine if you took your very expensive uh, power electric wheelchair just into the shower, probably not a great environment for it. And same with with mine. And it's just that kind of point of people just haven't clicked. There's this kind of, they have just never thought about like, well, what does a disabled person or wheelchair user do when they have a shower? Um, And so I think those points of just like educating people that, you know, it isn't this kind of, abstract concept of disabled person coming but it's a real person who does all these real life things that you know that everybody else does just in different ways and that is the kind of lens through which you need to then actually build the the transport systems and the the kind of accommodations because if not then we just have these kind of arbitrary you know tick box categories that yes you have one mobility you know equipment and nobody actually knows what that means or can can sort of really speak to about it um so i think that's a really fundamental point and the, the over-communication one, I think, is also great. But let's touch on that one a little bit because I know for a while you're working on Assist Me, this tool, um, yeah. and Adapt as well, this tool to be able to help people travel, um, particularly through airports, more easily. Um, and what I really liked about that concept was, you know, for the most part, disabled people bear the burden of communicating this information to others. Um, yeah. The individual has to kind of explain themselves in lots of different environments, often multiple times. And I think airports are one particularly horrendous example of that where you will literally tell people the same thing at three different counters and nobody in the airport talks to each other. Um, and yeah. they sort of have a sense of like, well, you didn't tell us. It's like, well, I told A and told B, can't they tell C? So give us a little bit more insight into, I guess, like how you see technology playing a role in, in, in whether it's Assist Me or others, in that kind of travel yeah. experience of things that kind of should be, you know, if we were designing this from a proper user experience, should exist, but currently, you know, don't and need to be improved. So I think the first point worth making is that for a lot of people, they don't even attempt to travel mm. because of the stress involved in that situation. So they they literally would prefer to not even consider the possibilities and opportunities that air travel could bring because mm-hmm. for them, and understandably so, it's it's just too much either risk or stress or or confusion or lack of clarity on the information um that just stops them dead in their tracks from from even approaching it which from my perspective as someone that has traveled and again i've been through plenty of stressful situations but does see unbelievable value in it it's like that's an unbelievably like gutting realization Mm -hmm. that people you know are put off because they're not given equal access to something that should have absolute equal access whether you're disabled or not um and so with regards to kind of creating technology that can assist in that as you pointed out there there are so many systems that kind of are are present in the airport environment and the experience from buying a ticket all the way through to turning up and being on a plane so Mm. you've obviously got the airline that you booked with you've got the the um airport itself and the airport staff you've got the um assistant staff in the airport and then you've got baggage handlers as well and Mm. and your data is transferred between those stakeholders and more um numerous times and there's no currently there's no appropriate system to take your kind of package of data about you 
and give it to all of those stakeholders in a uniform way at the same time so that you know you've given your information once let's call it like a a passport of information you know there's no way at the moment that you can take your passport of information give it to every stakeholder that you know is relevant and that you give permission to have that information and then just wash your hands with it and know that everything's fine yeah. so it's it's around the kind of how disjointed and broken that communication process is at the moment like we we have codes that represent a certain type of dis disabled user so you know mm -hmm. your, your wheelchair users or you know in physically impaired um, passengers or wh whatever it might be in terms of their their specific disability but beyond that um there's no kind of uniform language that's used mm -hmm. um so as you say like i have to explain that my wheelchair's got a dry cell battery that it's 65 centimeters wide it's 150 kilos heavy you know all of this stuff that i do five times or more in the process of from booking through to turning up and being on the aircraft and yeah. the amount i get so bored of my own voice when i am about to get on a plane i'm like right so this wheelchair needs to be brought up in a in an airlift you know in a kind of mm. high loader to the aircraft when i land and then i get on the plane mm. and i you know make sure i speak to an air, air stewardess or, or air steward and um and say oh hey just so you know when i land i need this to be brought up to the aircraft and i do that because of experience and knowing that if one person in that chain drops the ball then there could be disastrous consequences for me and my equipment yeah. so so obviously when you look to technology and what you're trying to do it's it's reducing that noise it's reducing yeah. the amount of handoffs between different um kind of entities uh, but similarly giving uniform data across it so what we were trying to do um with adapt which is a kind of airport specific variant of assist me this disability mm -hmm. app is giving reassurance to the user by kind of allowing them a bit like a an uber cab to um to turn up at an airport and the and the airport staff know that they were on their way see them like a like a taxi arriving but it's the user that so they know where to meet them when to meet them um and and then they can kind of manage that interaction mm -hmm. um but similarly they know that their data is all in this app so that yeah. when they're passed between different stakeholders, that same uniform data is being transported between different departments. So they've got peace of mind that everyone understands and knows the same key information, some of which might be personal that they don't want to be talking about at every kind of handoff. Um, and then they can fly with a peace of mind that their equipment's accounted for, the baggage handlers similarly know about it and how to store it because that's yeah. also in their profile. And then they fly and land and again, know that people on the other side uh, are going to greet them. They're going to get the assistance they need, um, both for them and any equipment they have. So that's kind of like um, what we were working on. Um, and it it was tough. Like it was a difficult, yeah. difficult thing to 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 do and to implement because like um, airports are kind of like cities. They're yeah. so big and there's so many different kind of people at play and priorities at play and yes you have the airport that wants to provide a good customer service experience to disabled passengers but if you said to a lot of airports well tomorrow we're going to give you 20 percent more disabled passengers mm. honestly would those airlines want that yeah. i don't know <laughs> would they be able to handle that I don't know. And would they mm. effectively suddenly be able to service their disabled passengers? Again, I'm not sure. So, so that's the difficulty. It's like as much as you want to provide a great customer service experience to everyone, and mm. you can objectively say like, okay, we should be providing the same service to a disabled customer as anyone else. Suddenly, if you said, well, you know, we're going to empower way more disabled passengers mm. to fly, actually creating a process where the airport the airline staff and the you know the assistant staff can service them without causing strain to their operation as well um that's where the real kind of key component comes in yeah. because you can do all this great stuff but until you actually can make the process better for them 
um, yeah. it's going to be a it's going to be a difficult a difficult sell. So that was again part of any technology that is built has to be an operational efficiency mm-hmm. tool as well as it being a good customer service tool. Awesome, John. Well, um, we wanted to sort of wrap up. We asked everybody at the end of, of a similar question or the mirror question to what the innovation inspiration was. Um, and we asked what your innovation imagination is. So um, where do you see, I guess, you know, we've spoken about lots of different things today, but if we go back to, I guess, the main discussion around like, you know, the representation of disabled people and particularly the communication in mainstream you know, media, where do you see, where do you hope to see this in 10 years time? Oh, big question for a, a Friday morning. Um, <laughs> um, I suppose in 10 years time, I want to see more kind of, um, sorry, I'm taking my time here because I just, I want to get, I want to get the language right. I, I think I want to see, I want to see um, people being more comfortable around all aspects of disability, but that's too broad. I mean, so that the language we use doesn't become a divisive issue because everyone is aware that everyone has the same um, belief in what is right and wrong and understanding of disability related issues. So, I mean, I suppose a good example of that, I hope now is, you know, although this might seem strange to bring it up, but like around sexuality, okay? And like how now we can talk about sexuality and the idea that people wouldn't be comfortable um, about certain people's sexuality is just preposterous. Everyone's on the same page now, or anyone that like has an opinion that (laughs) should be represented um, in the mainstream. is of the opinion that, of course, like that, that's a no brainer. And I suppose in 10 years, I, I think that we've all been educated enough around issues in disability and representation that it isn't strange to see someone take a lead role in a movie that's in a wheelchair, but their role in the movie doesn't relate to actually the fact that they're disabled or you, there's no bias in the boardroom and we do see disability on the agenda by default and as you know a certain percentage a higher percentage of disabled people in senior management um are seen across all companies and and similarly you know the the conversations we have around disability um uh, uh can I, we go back to this kind of word of nuance but like we are able to really tackle some serious questions and everyone has a broader understanding of the issues at play so so that we've gone further down the line of not just we're not talking about accessibility on trains anymore because actually it's obvious that we should bake that in to all new train designs and and everyone should be able to turn up and go and not book 24 hours in advance and and so i think that it yeah it's it's just around everyone being more comfortable everyone having more understanding um, and and therefore that in itself spawns far greater inclusion in the process. Awesome. I think that's a great vision and hopefully it comes a bit quicker than 10 years' time. Um, yeah, and a final, <laughs> a final quick question, Dom, is what would you say to, you know, Dom 2.0, a person, um, you know, facing a similar decision to you as you were, you know, uh, all that time ago, thinking about, you know, the grad scheme, whether you should join Channel 4 and, you know, maybe doing the documentary, things like that. Somebody who, um, you know, is, is sort of on that similar precipice, but today and thinking about um, a career path that they're wondering whether they should go into, you know, into something related to their disability or not, or like somebody in a similar situation, you, what's a piece of advice you'd give them from your journey so far? I think um, take opportunities that present themselves to you and don't hesitate or worry about the the things that might be nagging in your head saying oh maybe i shouldn't do this because x or y Mm -hmm. but then more broadly um genuinely do what you enjoy and i and i know that's such a like cliched statement to say but for me like 
following a path in life that I, uh, every turn so far, have followed, not because I think it's the one that is going to set me up best in life and give me the most money, but one that actually is going to satisfy me and make me genuinely, like, happy. Um, and not just me happy, but, like, fulfill me. Um, that, I think, is way more valuable. So I absolutely would always encourage anyone, whether it's me 2.0 or anyone else that's kind of coming up into this in, into this sort of world and ideas around what they want to do. Um, yeah, always just follow your heart in terms of doing something that, that you think will bring you the greatest amount of satisfaction and happiness. Um, awesome, Dom. Well, thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us today. I think a really interesting conversation, hopefully the really eye-opening and educational one for lots of people out there. Um, we look forward to, to keeping in touch and to seeing Tiny Man Digital go from strength to strength, and I'm sure we'll see you uh, in the Elise you know, area and, and on the various um, programs that are, are getting produced uh, very soon. So thanks again for taking the time, um, and have a great rest Thank of your you. Friday morning. Thank you very much indeed, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community? To find out more, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise 2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development, and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners, including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capsule Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexor, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.